Welcome to another edition of Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. And Jones, we're going to do something special this week. We're going to have one guest for the entire show, and it's a big one, folks. He's got a book that is uh, coming out basically right now, available in all fine bookstars uh, across Canada, the United States, around the world, whether it be Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Indigo's Chapter, you name it. You can find this book. It's Hard for Me to Live With Me by Rex Chapman and Seth Davis. And joining us right now is the aforementioned Rex Chapman. Rex, I guess first question for you here is how difficult was this book for you to write? And maybe the follow-up is how therapeutic was it to write as well? Uh, I'm waiting on the therapeutic part. Um, <laughs> it's It's been, it's been difficult. Um, you know, I think everyone who's been in recovery of some kind, you kind of feel like you're on a hamster wheel and you don't, you know, you just try to keep doing the next appropriate thing and you kind of get caught up in your life. And after so long, you can kind of put out of your mind some of the stuff you've done, (laughs) some of the ways you've lived your life. And I think I had probably done that. And kind of return to somewhat of a a normal life without thinking about too much of my past day in and day out. But the last two years have changed that. And, you know, I've had to go back in. Seth Davis, who helped me write the book, um, was just great. He was more of a counselor during the last two years than anything. And, but it was really, it's been really difficult revisiting some of that stuff. And, you know, especially for my you know, relatives, family, friends, close friends, my ex-wife, my children, uh, you know, this is opening up some old wounds and um, that's, that's never very fun. What's, what did you hope to get out of it, Rex, when you wrote the book? I mean, like you said, it obviously uh, brought you back to somewhere where you, uh, a time that made you uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but you know, kudos to you. A lot of, it yeah. takes a lot of courage to do that, but what were you hoping to accomplish well, by, by getting it done? I appreciate that. Um, I think that, I think the main thing is, you know, I grew up in the, I was born in the late sixties, grew up in the seventies and eighties. And there was a guy that um, played football for Ohio state when I was young, that was out of this world. Like everybody's all American guy. His name was Arch Schleister. And he was a quarterback. And it's well-documented. Art ended up having some drug problems and gambling problems. And I remember hearing about that, you know, as a kid, and thinking, what? What do you mean you can't stop gambling? You can't, you know, you can't stop what you're doing. I had no idea. Like, why is this guy screwing his life up like this? Would have been really valuable for me to know his story at the time. But you didn't really know it. I think with my story, I'm sure people looked at me a lot the way they did with Arch Leister, um, and have, you know, coming up, white kid, athletic, looks like may have the world by the tail. I did not have the world by the tail. I, I was, I probably always struggled with depression some, um, you know, when people were putting me on the cover of magazines, I felt like a fraud. You know, I wasn't this happy all-American kid. I, I struggled socially. The basketball part of everything I could do and I can handle pretty well. It was all the other stuff, the interviews, the the scrutiny on my personal life, the 
just never being able to get a moment for myself. Those things really weighed on me and probably led me into, well, I gambled forever. I chased girls. I uh, <laughs> lived at the racetrack, uh, thoroughbred races. I could read a racing form before I could read a newspaper. So I, <laughs> it took me till I was about 45 and bottoming out before I developed any real life skills for handling, uh, handling adversity, handling stuff that happens to you off the court. Um, so I would hope with this book that people can read it and maybe relate to it a little bit. You know, I spent 14 or 15 years uh, with a very bad opioid problem. And I thought I would never be able to get off those drugs. And now I'm nine, nine and a half years clean. So hopefully if, you know, people struggle with mental illness, addiction, whatever it is, maybe they can relate to this book a little bit. Hello? Rex, boy, that's, that hits home. I mean, we're, Eric and I always say we live in the toy department in sports and, and, you know, that's, uh, you, you know, you're dealing with that stuff. That's, that's uh, hard life stuff. That is certainly not the toy department. Did, did you, when you were coming up, like when I think about the Rex Chapman that for me, you know, King Rex first burst onto the scene, a, a kid that was, as you said, like going to Kentucky, uh, you know, one of the storied programs in NCAA history, a Kentucky kid, mm -hmm. and, and, and you had all of this in front of you. If you could go back, Rex, were there times when you, uh, were there times when you would have changed, I'm not necessarily saying the direction, just changed the way the direction happened? Because I'm sure you had, like you said, the world at your fingertips as, as a kid going to Kentucky and, and a, you know, and a, as a star athlete in that program, the way they you know, revere their athletes, the direction was there and that was set. But would you have changed, what would you have changed in the way that you got into that direction? Well, I don't know that I would have changed anything. Uh, the, uh, so there's a, a probably a, a poignant part of this. When I was a teenager, 15, 16-year-old teenager in Owensboro, Kentucky in the 80s, uh, I, I had uh, my first girlfriend, the black girl, Sean Higgs is her name. And we were just young and, you know, kind of, puppy love and all that stuff. People didn't like it. And I was white and she was black. And when I got to Kentucky, uh, it was made clear to me that they didn't like that either. And so I was kind of discouraged. I wasn't kind of, I was discouraged from dating Sean in public. And that, that lone thing really messed with me. And it caused me to, uh, I could handle everything on the court, but I had a panic attack about it in, in college right off the bat. I just felt like a fraud. I felt like, you know, that they were telling me to do something I knew was not, not right. Going back, I asked them to take me to the hospital. They didn't want to take me to the hospital because they were afraid the media might find out and ask what was wrong with me. 
So I eventually got over the panic attack and went back to playing, and I forgot about that whole episode for about 25 years. So I would say at 17, 18, 19, you know, if I could go back and do it all again, I would probably go straight into therapy at that age and try to figure out, you know, what, what's going on here. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I, obviously I have the ability now to look back and say, well, it was institutional racism. I didn't know that was a term. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, I just felt very mistreated. And Uh, Rex, uh, I'll say this. I'll say this as, as, as a black man and having been to Kentucky and understanding all that, could you, as you look back now, have been the guy to say, well, hey, wait a minute, with all of the stuff going on around civil rights and the way the world was, I would say, trying to change at that time, could you have said, no, man, I'm, I'm doing this. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> you know, uh, it, now it's easy now. <laughs> it's easy now. You got to remember at 17, 18, 19, nobody around me dated a black girl no but no man i knew uh i was being told by adults grown-ups you can't do this this is gonna affect you uh in negative ways um i wanted forever for us to be photographed for some writer everyone knew this everyone knew this all the kids knew this it was the adults that didn't have a it was the boosters it was uh so you know, on one hand, I have all these people yelling for me and uh, wanting me to do these things, great things on the court, and I was doing them. But I couldn't live up to their expectations off the court and constantly felt like I was disappointing people. So, and you got to remember, at 17, 18, 19, my grandmother's alive, my great-grandmother's alive, my great-great-grandparents are alive. They're over 100. I was a child, and I didn't know how to... I didn't know how to process any any of the uh, real life things that were happening to me. Basketball, no problem. But I was eighteen, going on twelve. Rex, if if I if if you don't mind me asking, going back into that moment, um, despite what the boosters were saying, or what some in, or many in the community were saying, what was the support, or was there any support from your family, or also flip side? from her family like how did both sides of the families react to your relationship um my family my folks didn't have a problem with me dating sean they um but in retrospect they could have been they could have been better about it they could have been more more open more welcoming and i think that probably would have caused other people to do the same or it may have gone the other way you got to remember my my mom her, her father was an attorney who died in a car wreck before I was born. But he used to represent black folks in the South, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And they would have, um, they would have crosses burned in their yards overnight. They would have, you know, trash thrown in their yards. This was the South in that era, and I think my folks, my mom in particular, was more concerned about my health. 
and safety. I got threats all the time from people. Um, I didn't take them very seriously, but as as a mom, I would imagine my mom, she was pretty nervous about it. Um, so, you know, I to, to answer your question, this was at such a time I was the most popular person probably in our state from the time I was 16 or 17 years old until I left Kentucky. And I never had any support on the topic ever. I just did what they asked me to do for the most part, which was we, we hid what we did. We went out at night. Um, we sneaked around and to be honest, it, it made us feel like we were, we were doing something wrong when we weren't. Rex, uh, man, you, I'm, I'm really looking forward now to, 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 to diving into your book. And, and uh, like I said, I'm, I, I am, I am because I'm a child of the civil rights. I mean, my brother, Mark and I grew up uh, right, you know, on both sides of the border. And I say it all the time, sat on my living room floor, watching stuff unfold on TV and, and could not understand it. Right. Um, and now, yeah, and I was a little, you know, I was a little bit behind that you know i i didn't think much yeah. about that I, what i what i did know was that you know jane kennedy and pam greer and grace jones and janet jackson and yeah. flojo and all these beautiful black women are across my tv all day long and what <laughs> i'm supposed to not notice what's going on here? yeah yeah the craziness it's craziness yeah. uh, rex how how did that how did that translate um, on the court, and Eric and I always say this to people. I mean, I'm uh -huh. a dad. He's a dad. We got kids in sports, and sports is the great equalizer with everybody pulling together in the same direction for a common goal. You tend to overlook race, color, creed, all of these things because that person, that guy, that, you know, in my daughter's case, that girl is your teammate, and you have a common goal in mind. I, right. I, I know Rupp was the last guy to kind of integrate into in the SEC, but you guys, mm -hmm. it just didn't seem like that was any, there were no issues with that at, you know, playing, playing for the Cats. What do you mean? No issues in what regard? In terms of the team being fractured or segregated or anything like that, that were open to, oh, no. to, to viewers, to people saying, oh, well, that black guy doesn't like that white guy or what. We didn't, I didn't oh, see any I of see. that. And I was a keen observer. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no, there was none of that. And my team, I love my teammates. My teammates love me. In fact, some of, they knew what I was going through. You know, I was called into the, the coach's office or met with boosters slash administrators a half dozen times over this in my two years at Kentucky. My teammates knew this, and you know they they rallied around me. They they you know they knew what was going on, which which makes for a a very weird dynamic. You know they they know. Also, my girlfriend at the time, she uh, her brother Mark Higgs was a year older than us. He was the best player on the football team. We're both from Owensboro, and so he was a great older. But just think about this. You got all the basketball players, all the football players in the school know that I'm dating Mark's sister and know that the school doesn't want me to be doing that publicly. What does that say to everybody? <laughs> you 
You know, yeah. these are guys are my teammates. They're my friends. It, it was uh, it was just something that was kind of unspoken, and you know, none of us, black or white, had the had the courage to fight it. You know, we basically, and if you think about it now, my only avenue to having a career was doing what they told me to do at Kentucky. If I didn't, Absolutely. that's how I felt anyway. If I didn't, you know, <laughs> they're going to bury me. And some of that happened anyway when I left school. People were not happy with it. <laughs> Rex, I, I, I don't want to by any means be guilty of skipping over things. And, and, or, and, and listen, I say this somewhat in jest. I don't want to be guilty of trying to pretend like I'm some kind of a doctor <laughs> by any means. But what you're just <laughs> telling us right now, Everything you went through as as a young person, that would be enough. Like that would be enough to understand the the as you your own words, the depression that you felt. Looking back now, all these years later, to say I was suffering from that, but maybe either didn't know it or didn't know what to do about it. That's enough. Let alone right. then the pressures that come with a with a, a collegiate career, being the star in the state, then a professional career, all of that stuff. Then we add in. Um, you know, the, the substance abuse and addiction and everything else. Did Do you think one yeah. became because of the other, or was it because of injuries? Like, were you, did you turn to drugs and gambling and alcohol because of the depression and the pressures of the youth, or was it, like, you know what I'm saying? Did one and one equal two, or were there yeah. other intangibles I, I at play? I don't know. The, yeah. I don't really know the answer to that. I, it's something I obviously wrestled with because I go back to – the pressures of basketball, that, those, that was not a real thing to me. Like I didn't, I was good enough and I, I loved it. I went out there and I went forward to those two hours just to talk some shit and play basketball and have fun running to people. Um, that part of it, I didn't, at any level, I didn't really feel any pressure. Uh, it was just the pressure of, I just felt very confused. I was young and had a lot of money and was famous before the internet, uh, at least sports famous anyway. Um, I was an addict always. And when I say that, I was a basketball addict from the time I could dribble it. I, I would wake up in the middle of the night in middle school in a panic at midnight and realize that it's nine o'clock on the West coast and somebody out West is probably hooping right now on a park somewhere. And I'd wake up and go for a run in the middle of the night or do a hundred pushups and go back to sleep. I was a basketball addict forever. So the addiction part of my, my, my dad's side of the family has gambling and mental health. And my mom's side of the family has drugs and alcohol. I didn't drink and drug. I think, growing up because I was afraid I might like it. Um, so I stayed away from all of that stuff. The problem was I was convincing myself that going and, you know, gambling all day, spending all day going, playing golf, away from my family, away from my kids, all that stuff, that's not healthy. I mean, from time to time, fine. But every day, all the time, those were just my coping skills. And I thought, I'm sure I thought because, well, because I'm not drinking and doing drugs, this is fine. What can be wrong with this? I just, it was a cycle that I got into and I didn't know how to get out of a lot of pride involved, you know, 
Um, it's just uh, I, I wish I could answer that. I I really don't know. I was probably always just sort of an addict, a drug addict, lying in wait. I would guess. Uh, Rex, I want to take this in a different direction because you are uh, a uh, a renowned, well-respected basketball guy, um, and and thank you for thank you for revealing all of this. And like I said, like uh, you know, um, it's uh, I, I know it's it's probably difficult for you, but it's it's probably oh. you're probably helping some people to to hear this too. So we we thank you for that. Well, I, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of. I'm kind of looking at the way the the game has transformed since mm-hmm. your days as a player. Um, how do you think? How do you think Rex Chapman would have held up in today's game? Had you because I know they had the chains on you a little bit, but you look at today's game with the running, the shooting, the three point. I mean, there were shots that you, I'm sure you would take, and if you missed that. Even if you made it, you'd be on the bench for two games for taking that shot at the wrong time. And yeah. now it's, 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 it's commonplace in the game. Yeah, bad, bad shots are in fashion. I invented the bad shot. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a different game. I, I, I really enjoy the game, the way it's played, all of that. Yeah, I miss some of the bumping and grinding and a little bit of defense. Um, I think all of us old guys, we kind of look at it and go, what, did I average 15 points a game? In my crazy mind, I think, well, in today's game, I could probably get 20 a game. Uh, I think that's what we all kind of do. I don't. The one thing that I look at with these guys today, they dribble so much better than we did. Both hands, they pass. They, I don't know if they pass better, but they pass with better with both hands. The stuff that they can do with the ball, you know, I played in an era, you play, came up playing in an era where at least six or seven guys at all times on the floor could not make a shot outside of 12 feet. Now, everybody on the court can shoot threes. And if you can't, you don't play. That's really different. It's five out, take your guy one-on-one. Newsflash, NBA players cannot be guarded one-on-one. Not with today's rules, anyway. You can't touch anybody, so it's a it's an offensive league, and that's what I think the league is determined. The fans want to see. Yeah, I I still can't get used to one forty five to one forty on a nightly basis, Rex. I, I really I know. can't. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> like but, like eighty points at halftime. I know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's you you look down sometimes and. And and see the halftime score as you say, or like the amount of times Jonesy and I will be doing Raptor games, we'll look like both teams are sitting at a hundred, and we haven't even started the fourth quarter. Like, what the hell's happening? Yeah, right or, or or there'll be or there'll be seven straight possessions in the third quarter that nothing but missed threes by both teams, right. and the play never stops, and nobody takes it to the rim and gets fouled. It feels like an all star game sometimes. <laughs> Rex, let me ask you this. There's a there's a guy, and Jonesy, I don't even remember where he's from. I think he might be from Spain. I, I could be wrong with that. Um, but there's a, a, a writer that's been in Toronto for a year. I think he, I think he is from Spain because I think he came in when uh, um, Hernan Gomez was with the Raptors last year, and, and he's stuck around. And he often asks the opposing uh, coach every time he's in the press conference. He'll probably be there tonight for Brooklyn. And, and he always asks, 
in, in his sort of broken English, which is far better than my Spanish. He says, do you think that the international game has surpassed the North American game? Why are international <laughs> players more skilled than North American players? And the standard answer seems to be from a lot of the coaches, like, well, because the game is global now and it has been for, if not 10 years, 20, 30 years, and the world certainly has caught up to the United States, to, to Canada, to North America, whatever. But is there something there? Because, Rex, I, Jonesy knows we both hate, yeah. you know, as two Canadian guys trying to draw the parallels to hockey. We're basketball guys. But right. hockey went through this back in the 90s with the Russians and the international influence, and there was mm-hmm. Canada itself had a summit. Like, the government wanted to have us, uh, Hockey Canada wanted to have a summit on what's wrong with our game, what's wrong with our players. Has it gotten to that point where the training, the coaching, the way kids are being brought up in the United States and Canada and North America is different from the way the kids are being taught and play the game across the globe? No question. Um, AAU, for the most part, is... uh... It, it's tough, and I I say this with a son who came up. He's 31 now. He played high school ball, played at co- ball, college ball at Ball State for a year. Um, AAU ball is crazy. I mean, it's these kids might have three or four games in a day, and let me just say, if you lose your first game and you got three more games left, and you play another one in 30 minutes, you can't really feel that loss like you should feel it. You know, you got to get ready to play. You're conserving energy for the next three games. You pick and choose when to play hard. Uh, it's random pickup basketball. And we tend to coddle our best players here. That doesn't happen overseas. They, these guys get coached. They get coached up hard. Um, and by the t- normally by the time they come here, they've been playing at a high level of if not professional basketball, semi-professional basketball, and they've all been really coached hard. You don't get many, you don't get many foreign guys who come over and are assholes. They know they have to be be coached. They know they have to be respectful, and have to play the game unselfishly. And I think that we've got a ways to go here to kind of catch up. And I'm not sure it's going to happen if we continue to roll this AAU model out like we do. So. So, so where do we go with the changes, Rex? Because, you know, it's funny, again, from a different era, you know, even coming out early, you went through life at Kentucky and you learned basketball. And then when you came to the pros, you learned the pro game, which was at times very different from the college game. Right now, yeah. you're drafting a kid on potential who's like, you know, we always say, Eric and I laugh about this. You know, you draft him in the first round this year. Well, last year at this time, he was he was coming home from the prom and he's had right. one year of college and now he's right. expected to play with grown men. That mm-hmm. it just, it, it, it makes it really difficult for the game. And I like you, I, I love the game. I think there's a, parts of it that are a little bit too soft right now and, and a, a little, there's a little bit of entitlement going on, but the game's, the game's entertaining, and that's what the NBA wants. Yeah. But in terms of teaching the game and the skill of the game, you're right. We have a long way to go. How? The grand question is, how do we start to make changes right now to improve it? Yeah, I'm with you. I think that uh, 
it's tough. You know, I, I played, I was fortunate to play two years of college basketball for Eddie Sutton and we've got, gotten along real well for different reasons. He was a great basketball coach and learning two years of his defensive principles, which Eddie was a defensive coach, overplay, get in passing lanes, create offense off the defense. If I hadn't had those two years and I'd just gone straight into the NBA or hadn't played for Eddie, who was such a stickler defensively, I think there's a good chance I probably could have washed right out of the NBA because, you know, I wasn't real strong. Uh, but I had been taught by him for two years, and my dad was a coach growing up. But I had I had been taught by Eddie, you know, there's certain things that are just non-negotiable defensively. And had I not had those things, I think I could have washed right out. And when you see guys, it just it constantly cracks me up to see these kids that reclassify. They reclassify and go, try to go to college a year younger. Shit, that might have made – at 16, 17 years old, going in and playing in my era, shit, we had eight, eight McDonald's All-Americans on the team every year coming in that were already there. Going and trying to play college basketball a year earlier is insane to me. I mean, unless you're built like LeBron James, uh, I, I just don't get it. So there's definitely we, we definitely have a rush to get to the NBA here in the states, and um, I'm not sure that that's the that's the best thing for young people because playing in the NBA is pretty hard. Hey, Rex, bear with me for a second. I'm going to be a little long-winded on this one, but as you're talking, there are tons of examples, like tons in the NBA, no doubt. But the one guy for, for me that pops in my brain, and it did for years when he was with the Raptors for almost a decade, DeMar DeRozan would come every year yeah. with something new. Like, there's something new in his bag. He wasn't a great with the handle. He got better. He wasn't great with the three-pointer. He got better. He wasn't good with his left hand. He exclusively used his only his left hand an entire offseason to come back better. But as I'm sitting here thinking about DeRozan as it ties into just development as a player and a guy who's, you know, Mr. Mid-Range and, 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 and mm -hmm. all of these, you know, all these coachable things and intangibles that we're talking about, I'm also thinking of how he kind of in a roundabout way ties into what we were discussing earlier as well. Poster boy now for yeah. the guy that came out and was maybe first on the scene, at least in recent memory, saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm battling depression and I'm battling some demons and yeah. I'm going to be the one that steps out. And then to think of where he came from, too, from Compton and mm -hmm. the way he grew up. He, Jones, he talked to us when he, Rex, he came into the league and like, man, Canada. Shit, I've never been to Canada or out, outside of the United States, let alone outside of Compton. Right. And now I'm here in, in Toronto. Like, there are so many things that I could bring up about DeRozan that I'm sure you could speak very, you know, directly to yeah. in so many different ways, both on and off the court. No question. And DeMar is a guy that I go back. He was, you know, finishing or he was just coming out. I, I had finished playing, but he's a guy who, and to be real honest, he, he wasn't good. Like he was not a good player when he first came out because he played one year in school and he didn't have the, you know, the, he hadn't had the coaching for a long time. Newsflash, Kobe wasn't good. Kevin Garnett wasn't good. They used to put those guys in games when they were young. They would put them on me. And I would have a field day because they didn't know how to play yet. Okay, they, they couldn't play Kevin Garnett inside because he was uh, 200 pounds, so they put him on two guards. He couldn't chase screens, and we'd torch him. He'd go down in the post, and they'd torch him. Same way with Kobe. Same way with DeMar. And I just got to tell you, when you're getting your ass busted by veterans and you think, shit, I, I don't know if I can play. 
that's that's tough. And it takes a special kind of person and competitor to go back in the gym the next day and get your ass beat by your teammates, your older players. It's just hard, and you got to be willing to learn, take those lumps, and hopefully you do have some uh, a support system around you. I'll tell a quick story real quick while you're talking while we're talking about Demar. So I don't know if you guys remember there was a guy that played at um, University of Minnesota. He was a little younger than I was. His name was Willie Burton. Is Willie Burton? Yeah. Willie, Willie played Willie with the, played uh, for the Miami Heat. He played for the played Heat. Played for yeah. the Miami Heat. Had yeah had some really good years down there. But Willie got fifty in a game one time. He was a scorer and. But I woke up one morning, I was playing in Charlotte, and I read in the paper that Willie was arrested down in Miami. He kind of had a, a breakdown of sorts, and he came out a couple of days later and, you know, said that he had depression. And guys, the media killed Willie Burton. What does an NBA player have to be depressed about? And, of course, he wasn't talking about that kind of depression. But nobody really knew. And I remember thinking at the time, I, I probably have depression. When that happened, <laughs> I'm not going to admit that to anybody. And I didn't forever. Um, so, DeMar, Kevin Love, these guys that are brave enough to – be in the middle of their careers or end of their careers, Ricky Rubio, and be able to say, look, man, I wasn't okay. That's something that we haven't had in past generations. And that's something yeah. that's really, I think, going to be powerful for kids growing up today, to be able to look on TV and see a guy like DeMar who's making game winners and doing all this great stuff that kids know that there are times that dude wakes up and struggles doesn't want to go to the gym, doesn't feel like talking to anyone. That's normal. That's life. And I think I kind of looked at other people my whole life, and I still do. I look at two guys talking on the corner of the street, and I'll go, man, it looks like they got their shit together. <laughs> and, of course, they don't or may not, or maybe they do. But I always yeah. think everyone's got their shit together more than I do. And I know a lot of people feel that way, having, you know, spoken to a lot of people recently. Well, Rex, you know, I, I think back to that era just before we ended here. Um, I, I think back to that era. There's another guy who played at Alabama, a guy named Jason Caffey. And yeah. Jason, suffer, Jason suffered from, you know, anxiety and panic attacks and all cool. of that. And, and you know, he, he kind of came out with it the same way. And. Uh, I, I guess the good thing is we've we've gotten past the stigma of you know how, uh, it's all about the money because that's I'm sure that was part of the stuff that you know kept people from coming out and saying I have an issue because people mm -hmm. are going to say what issue can you have with right. all of this money and that's that's right. the biggest thing right now. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Rex, can I give you one last one before we let you go? And we really appreciate your time. Sure. How difficult has it been? Uh, we talk, I think my very first question was how difficult was the book to write, but how difficult has it been to put yourself out there in social media the way you have? Because we're talking about millions of followers now on, on, on uh -huh. Twitter slash X and, 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 and being 
so open and honest and just living your life and interacting with folks compared to maybe where you once were or even how you still sometimes or many times still feel it's it's quite the contrast yeah i think that uh well i've kind of realized that secrets aren't good for me um and uh, you know i think you asked somebody asked earlier at 17 18 19 why didn't i just say hell with it and just do what i wanted that would have been the right you know I, that would have been the right thing. And I kicked myself. That's why the book's called It's Hard for Me to Live With Me. I could have controlled all this stuff. I just didn't. And at this point, you know, if if I'm <laughs> too cowardly to talk about uncomfortable shit, then maybe I haven't learned anything. So I try to, you know, I try to not overwhelm, you know, the Twitterverse with, with bullshit, but occasionally – um, if there's something I feel strong about, I'll, I'll put a spotlight on it. And I, I feel like that, that, for me at least, that's a, that's a little bit of growth. Good. I got a story for you. Uh, okay. Uh, what, 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 tell me your hometown again, Rex, in Kentucky. Uh, Owensboro? Owensboro, Kentucky. Right. Yeah. Owensboro. Right. So, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little older than my brother, Mark, but uh, okay. that vintage... I'm playing pickup basketball as a grad assistant at Western University. It's in London, Ontario. And I got this okay. heavy set I got this heavy set dude who couldn't jump over a slice of bread. But he's out there he's out there wheeling and dealing and I'm running with him and I I can only get a word here or there like, Yeah, you hit that. That's you. And like it's this heavy set white dude with glasses, and we win like three games in a row. After about the third game, I'm like, "Hey man, where are you from?" He's like, "I'm from Kentucky." I'm like, "Okay, okay, where?" He goes, "Owensboro." He said, "You ever heard of it?" I said, "You ever heard of a guy named Rex Chapman?" We've been kindred spirits since. He's 68 years old now. He's 68 what? years old. Yeah, he retired from being a professor at Maryvale College in Tennessee. And I said, you ever been to see your cats play Tennessee? He said, hell no, I won't give those orange people not one dime of my money. So, so this summer, and Eric and our producer Austin know this, this summer, Cal had his team up here to play in Global Jam as Team USA. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so Paul Threadgill messages me and said, I have been in Canada since 1985 when I graduated with my PhD in plant sciences but i'm about to come up there to toronto this summer to watch my cats so he came up this summer we caught up and i'm telling you no way yeah yeah he's he's a cancer survivor when he had cancer up here i had i had dwayne casey and jamal mcglore and patrick patterson i had them all (laughs) phone him and like inspire him like come on man keep going yeah that's great yeah that's great basketball man it is, man. It is. He's like, you ever, you ever heard of it, Owensboro? Uh, and I, I was right up. I was right in this shit. I'm like, you ever heard of Rex Chapman? Ready. And he was like, he was like all over me. Like, I got you. I got you. He was the uh, first guy in 1981, in the fall of 1980 or 81. I don't remember. It's so far back. He said to me, he said, I need you to come to Rupp with me this weekend. I said, why? He said, we're going to watch Auburn. 
and they got a dude that's a moving van playing power forward by the name of Charles Barkley. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'd never heard of Charles. I'd never heard of Charles. Well, again, the book is called It's Hard for Me to Live With Me, available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble in the States. Uh, uh, here in Canada, I'm sure it'll be available at Chapters Indigo as well and uh, at all fine bookstores as well. Rex, we really appreciate your time and, and being so open and honest with us. It was a great conversation, and uh, all the best to you with the book and, and with everything else going forward. Thanks, fellas. Thanks for having me. Much love. What a fantastic conversation that was uh, with Rex Chapman. He was unbelievably uh, honest with us, Jonesy, and, and, and speaking from the heart big time, especially with uh, a lot of heavy stuff that we got into off the top of the interview. And, um, you know, you and I have had conversations over the years and, and discussed with the audience, uh, you know, encounters that we have had, you and I, together, especially in certain cities in the U.S., not that it hasn't happened in Canada, but in certain pockets in the United States and our travels with the Raptors where, uh, you know, I say we, but it's probably been more so you encountered racism. Um, but Jonesy, you know, I don't know if I'm getting too personal here, but but you've uh, you know been been a part of an uh, interracial relationship uh, in in your lifetime, and I'm sure you can probably speak uh, even more directly to some of the stuff that Rex was talking about um, when he was talking about that that first girlfriend he had, and uh, again sure. with with the era in which you grew up with, as you noted to to Rex and and growing up in those times. Uh, again, not that things are always rosy these days, but certainly back then, uh, it was a much different story. Yeah, it was. And, and you know, like I, I said this to people publicly, um, don't know that you and I could, in that era, could ever work together. Um, right. You know, the same way Rex had to go through it, there would be people that say, no, no, no. Uh, you know, uh, an, an, an interracial or, a, or a, a mixed broadcast team, no, that's not working. That, that doesn't work. And so, you know, people like Rex going through what he's gone through has kind of, they always say that, you know, the, the first people out take all the hits and all the people coming in behind get all the glory. And uh, yeah, you know, I've got three amazing biracial kids, but uh, thanks to the time and the era or else it would not have happened. It, it, it could not have happened. And right now we see uh, mixed, you know, relationships, be they, you know, black, white or different religions being mixed, uh, whatever. And we don't bat an eye because we've maybe are coming to the point where people are people and they're taken for who they are. And, you know, I just finished over the all-star break reading a great book by, uh, and I can't wait to dive into Rex's book, but by William C. Roden, Bill Roden, former writer for the New York Times. Um, and and it, the book is entitled $40 Million Slaves. And it was it's kind of a shot at pro sports and some of the, you know, the prominent black athletes being apolitical because of money. Whereas the generation is changing now that guys have their money and they're not worried and they are speaking out and it's just helping to advance the cause. So, uh, yeah, we, I mean, we continue to evolve. We hope that things continue to get better and, uh, you know, people are seen for who they are as people and not for a color or a race or a religion or, a, you know, a sexual orientation or anything like that. Thanks again to Rex Chapman for joining us. And again, the book is It's Hard for Me to Live With Me. 
Folks, make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and share. Heck, this would be a great episode to share as we, again, appreciate the time of Rex Chapman. Thanks to producer Austin Mackey. For Paul Jones, I'm Eric Smith. Thanks for tuning in to Smith & Jones. <laughs>